We're in the book of Romans together. Our text this morning, as Barr said, is Romans 7, verses 1 through 6, if you want to start turning there. This was originally supposed to be kind of a two-week series that Gage was going to be, Gage Jordan was going to be joining us and kind of teaching Romans 7 in its entirety, but he's not able to join us in person this weekend um, as I, we were kind of waiting to see when we were going to start in-person stuff. Uh, so today I get the privilege of diving into the first half of what Paul is really laying kind of the groundwork of what has taken place in our relationship with Christ. In the second half, Gage will teach on next week, Paul sharing kind of a bit of his own personal testimony. Uh, we say this term, the war is over, but the struggle is real, it's ongoing, and so uh, Paul really shares a lot of his own personal struggle, and we'll get into that next week. Um, as you consider the text this morning, I want to highlight three particular things for us. Uh, the first is going to be this, the relationship that we inherited, how that or how the relationship ended, and now the relationship in which we stand. Those are going to be the three things I want to highlight. Um, and then by means of application, share just a moment um, what that looks like in the life of a believer for these three things to have taken place and for us to be standing in this new relationship. What does that look like? Uh, I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me in God's uh, in honor of God's word, as I read it for us, it's Romans 7, uh, verses 1 through 6. And it says this, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God." For while you were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. As you take your seats, would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning, even as we dive into your word and take a look at this passage, that one, even as we think about marriage in Ephesians 5, maybe comes to our mind and other, and other verses that really talk on what it means to um, be submissive and to love and to care for one another, how, how that jumps in and, and, and serves us here in this, in this illustration, um, but Father, even more so that we wouldn't dwell much on the law, that being dead, but dwell on this new relationship that we have with you and how this marriage um, in, in so many ways mirrors our relationship um, with, the, with the marriage that we see here on earth, perhaps. So Father, help this text and these truths to come alive and, and be applied where they need to be applied. Father, would you come now in your spirit and work amongst us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first, the relationship that we inherited, 
I want to remind everyone that anytime you read uh, this book, Romans or other letters from Paul, it's, it's really hard to kind of take it in bites, like take little snippets of it without referring to the context um, because it's a letter. It's meant to kind of be read in its entirety. Um, and so you have to kind of look at what's already been said as well as the truths that Paul is saying are kind of building throughout the letter. So you have to kind of take all of that into, into account. So in order for us to understand the relationship that we inherited, we really need to look earlier in the letter at Romans 5.18, for instance. It says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's obedience, that one man being Adam, obedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that being Christ, the many will be made righteous. What Paul is saying here is that the relationship that you inherited through our first father, Adam, was a broken one. One that separated you from your heavenly father. And since there's no middle ground, just kind of like what we discussed last week, at the same moment that you were separated from God, you were bound to an evil master, sin and death and brokenness. The truth of it is we've all broken the original covenant of works, this covenant made between Adam and God in the garden. If you are not familiar with this, it's found in Genesis 2, verses 15 and 16. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you will not... You will." You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Romans 1 and 5, as well as other places, remind us that sin and some sort of understanding of this imputed brokenness existed in the world before God gave the written law to Moses. But the, but the law came, the written law came to clarify and to expose the depth of our brokenness that existed. Paul touches on this in verse 5. The law aroused our sinful passions. So what does that mean? Well, I don't want to get into it too deep because that's really the second half of this, and Gage is going to uh, jump into that next week. But anytime, if, if someone tells you no, I want you to think about it. Oftentimes, that, it, that invites immediate challenge in us. If, if someone were to say no, you immediately, questions pop in your mind, well, well why not? What, what doesn't he want me to have, or what do, don't they want me to understand or know? We see this very clearly in our children, sorry kids who are here, um, not because adults don't struggle with it anymore, but we as adults ha have either gained some sort of power to say, look, if I, if, if I want something, I'm just going to go out and buy it. So I don't need to ask mommy or daddy for it anymore, uh, so I'll just go ahead and get it. Or if, if something happens that we can't control and can't just get for ourselves, we've just gotten better at hiding it. We, we typically don't throw a hissy fit on the floor like some of my kids do. Maybe you do, and I may or may not have done that and do that from time to time. But that's exactly what we see Satan capitalizing on in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. With a certain, uh, the serpent comes to them and proposes an alternate theory on God's instructions as well as making an accusation about God. And what we see here is that man and woman immediately pounce on this opportunity 
for greater understanding, for greater knowledge, to get this, this secret knowledge that God is withholding from them. This break that takes place in Genesis 3 has left us with an inherent brokenness. This is the old self that Paul mentions in Romans 6, verse 6. So how does this relationship end? There in the garden, God himself commits the first killing of an innocent animal in Genesis 3, so that by its sacrificing, the overwhelming shame that came flooding in with the sin of our first parents' disobedience might be covered up, but certainly not taken away. We know that the animal does not have a capacity in its life or death to take sin away. So even as early as Genesis 3, we see the shadow of the last killing that would take place for sin, once again offered by God himself, and now once for all, not simply to cover, but to take away sin and shame and bring awareness of life and newness of life, which we see in Romans 6, verse 4. And it's only through the death of Christ that we get the promise we see in Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And so now, kind of jumping into verse uh, chapter 7, he uses the analogy of marriage. Now, I want you to understand there's great debate on as, as far as how far we're meant to, to take this particular analogy. In other words, is our relationship to the law in every way a direct comparison to our relationship with a spouse? Or is Paul simply using marriage here, which is a very familiar picture to us, of the binding nature of the relationship that we have in a marriage and also with the law? Is he trying to say that we just can't simply abandon it on our own? That God's intent for marriage was only to be released in the death of one of the parties. Now, I will admit to you here, I am no expert, but I tend to lean in that direction, that that's what Paul is trying to get us to focus more intentionally on those characteristics rather than the analogy as a word-for-word thing that we should take everything and sort of dissect. Um, For instance, I really think he's instead trying to focus on first verse 1, that the law is this binding as person uh, to a person as long as he lives, leading into verse 4 of chapter 7, you also have died to the law through the body of Jesus, so uh, Christ, so that you may no longer belong to another, or you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So this idea that you are bound, and then through Christ you are unbound and free to pursue another. Now we said this last week, and Paul is laying out in this section kind of our old relationship to sin as well as our new relationship with Christ. So what has happened is Christ, who remained faithful to the Father in not sinning, but also faithful to the law and keeping it perfectly, so he did everything the Father asked, being faithful unto death, remaining faithful to the law, keeping it perfectly, but he's also faithful to us, that while we were sinners, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, this is all Romans 5, through intercession, this is him stepping in the way of interceding, he's taken on both the sin that's imputed to us from our first father 
as well as the sin that we have kind of tacked on as we, you know, taken, taken the ball and running with it. Um, and at that time, he also, as he dies, he not only takes that sin, but he also imputes or gives us his righteousness. So making us faithful by the gifted righteousness of Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a big word that you're free to use if you like using big words and you want to sound impressive. Double imputation is this theological word that we throw around sometimes. Now, if you want other people to understand what, you, what you're saying, you could use another word like the great exchange, which is another thing that uh, I use more often. But that's what we're talking about is Jesus. We impute our unrighteousness, our sinfulness to Christ. We put it on Christ, and at the same time, he imputes his righteousness, his perfection on us. And so there's this great exchange, kind of uneven on Christ's part, but we are the beneficiaries of double imputation here, this great exchange. That's how the relationship ends. Now, lastly, let's look at this relationship in which we stand. We said a few weeks ago that those in Christ are so because they are buried with him in death and raised with him in life. We have this ultimate security that if Christ, in fact, died, we died. And as long as he lives, we live. We are grafted to him and we may try in vain to get rid of him. But here's the truth and the reality of this secure relationship. He will never try to get rid of us. Also reference 2 Corinthians 5.15. Christ died so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. Before Christ, even our righteous attempts to please God only brought shame. But look at the second half of verse 4. We died of the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. So the covenant of works is satisfied by Christ's death, and we are able to enter into a new relationship, a new covenant. This is the covenant of grace. And let me just say, this is not a covenant that just shows up in the New Testament. And it's not a covenant that just applies to those who came after Jesus. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when they took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, again using this analogy of marriage, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The original kind of mandate that we see early on of this God who is pursuing a people to be their God and him and them be his people. This is the same covenant of the prophets, Moses, Abraham, David, that they look forward to this new covenant that's spoken up here, this covenant of grace, that they look forward to it in faith. 
Their works couldn't save them. The blood of bulls. We see this in the New Testament. I think it's Hebrews. That, that, that none of those things could take away sin. They pointed to the one who could and who did, who ultimately is Christ. Their works couldn't save them any more than they can save us. Look at Romans 7, our text, in verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as, as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, meaning the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. As we go back to the cross, on the cross, every ounce of God's wrath and the inherited nature that was yours before you were born as a, as a son and daughter of Adam, plus all the sin that came from our preceding brokenness, is poured out on Christ. Tim Keller says it this way, If you don't get Romans 7, 6, you don't get Christianity. I'm going to say what he said to his folks in attempting to teach this. If you walk away today and you still don't understand Romans 7, 6, it probably has something to do with my failings as a communicator or a teacher. But whatever you do, do not stop. Do not let this be your only exposure and your only attempt to try to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, to try to understand what is taught here in Romans 6, 7, and in the essence of what Christ is trying to communicate. Whatever you do, do not stop trying to understand this. It is the key crucial component of what it means to free ourselves of the law and to live in our new life with Christ. And oftentimes we don't do that. We find ourselves going back to the old code, the old man, the law. I was sharing with a group of pastors this week who get together and just pray uh, through the season and uh, made this observation and asked this question. Um, and I just want you to think about it. Oftentimes at some point, maybe at the end of your day, maybe it's a spouse or someone that you're talking to on the phone and they ask you the question, how was your day? And, and, and you're tempted, uh, and the, the thing is, where do you go to build the answer to that? When, when you think about kind of, when, when that question is asked you, and I'm sure many are asked that question, how was your day? Where do you go to, to, to bring in data to determine how to answer that question? If you're like me, you immediately start thinking of the works that you've done that day. You start thinking of the things that you got done at work, the things that you didn't get done, you start thinking about how was breakfast and your meals, are you hungry? Um, you start thinking about your interactions with people, were they pleasant, were they testy? Uh, did everything kind of go right? Did you hit every green light? Were you stopped at every red light? And, and upon that data kind of coming in, you begin to grade your day and the significance of your day amidst all of these different events that have taken place and kind of what has gone on and asking your question, did, did anything significant happen? Is this a, is this an A, grade A kind of day or was it an F? Or when that question is asked, how was your day? Do you grade it 
on the finished work of Christ as your, as your primer? Is that, is that the, the main filter that you filter all the data of everything that's come through your day? Our marriage to the law having ended, and we are now married to Christ. If you're a Christian, you're now married to Christ. But how often do you and I still oftentimes find ourselves living as though we're still married to the ex? Considering what the ex thinks and and kind of living in light of their approval, grading the value of each day solely on what we do and what we accomplish. Christian, that's the old code that Paul is talking about here. If we're grading our day and our value solely on what we do and what's been done around us, then we're using the old code. These pastors and I have been talking about um, the thing that we're kind of going back to is winning the morning. That's kind of been our term and phrase here, meaning setting our course each day in light of the finished work of Christ. In other words, rather than defaulting to, to doing our best to make a significant mark on the world ourselves, we start from the point that everything we do is significant in light of what Christ has already done. That might sound like some sort of Jedi mind trick to make you think more positively, but I promise you, if you start to think about that question, we do not do this. We find ourselves default mode, running to the old code, jumping out into our cars and living our day in the old code and not in the spirit like Paul is talking about here. As an exercise perhaps in a means of application for us to start your day by thinking about the finished work of Christ and the grace in which you stand. Because that's the only way most of us will break out of the patterns that we formed, the disciplines that we've kind of built around ourselves to to follow the old way of the written code but instead to invite the Spirit to lead us throughout our day and that each stop along the way as a divine appointment with eternal significance. Because here's the truth. God does not waste your time. God does not waste your life. There's no days of insignificance with God. There's no moments of insignificance with your God. Whether your day starts with a fussy child in a dirty diaper or a worldly difficult boss in a job that you hate, or marriage that lacks spark or motivation or encouragement. From the worst injustice to the numbing triviality of the mundane. To see all these things that God puts us in as means of eternal value because of what Christ has already done. That's what it means to live in the spirit life that he's talking about here and not default to the old code where whether or not we get this or don't get this, whether or not this happens or doesn't happen really defines whether or not I've had significance happen here. This season has certainly taken a toll on all of us in different ways. And and, and I'm going to avoid the question of how your life is going Maybe it's going well. Maybe you're spending more time at home and enjoying this. Maybe it's not. Maybe you've been out of work 
Maybe you have no idea how you're going to pay bills. Maybe the, the chaos and disorder that you find all of this in has just been uh, too much to handle. What I'm here to ask you this morning is, is your life rooted in the finished work of Christ? Is, is that the premise and is that the starting point from which you view all other things that are taking place? Is in light of the finished work of Christ, in light of the fact that we are still here and we are in his ambassadors to whatever job or n- not lack of job you have, whatever significant uh, time and season you're in or insignificant time of season you feel you're in, they're eternal moments brought to you by God himself to root you in this moment and allow you to be a light, to be salt and light. I was just thinking about um, the words of the hymn as I was even thinking this morning and kind of walking through this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his loving face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. Let's pray together. Father, think about the lyrics of that song and the reality floods in that that's not how we live. I'm just overwhelmed at the question of building my life and building my significance from what I do and allowing that to determine who I am versus starting and ending with the finished work of Christ and and, and measuring moments. No matter how the world judges them and grades them, measuring them Uh, with their eternal weight of value that far surpasses all other things that you talk about. So, Father, we pray, I pray even for our people this morning, those who are watching and those uh, who maybe will watch, and even us who are here this morning, that we would wrestle with this and tomorrow would be different, not by what we do, but just by understanding what has already been done. What waits for us every morning when we open our eyes? What sustains us while we sleep? What awaits us even through this veil, this very thin and short veil called life? That our eyes would be fixed not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Father, stir our hearts to understand and uh, the significance of, of what you've called us and and, and who we are in Christ and the power that we have in your spirit. May that propel us to love and to give and to serve and to be and nothing else. 
It's in your holy son's name that we pray these things. Amen.